Good morning, brothers and sisters. Wonderful to see you today. I'd like to go ahead and get us started off with a word of prayer, and then we'll dig a little bit into, into God's word and start our discussion. So let's pray. Father, we continue to need your wisdom. It is hard to navigate this world and human relationships knowing the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of our own hearts. Even though we have the light of the gospel, which shines especially bright in this dark world, we recognize that the steps we walk are are often hazy and shadowy to us. The world is dimmed. Uh, Our thoughts, our, our feelings are dimmed. So we rely upon your light. We need your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We need the hope of Jesus to carry us through this world as well. Lord, please continue to shine that light upon our path. Please continue to grant us that hope uh, that we might not sin against you, that we might persevere, that we might approach this calling that we have in this world to be faithful with joy in our hearts as we give you all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He said, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He says, I know my sheep by name, and no one will snatch them from my hand. Such a powerful, encouraging passage. And then in a sense, it's put on display in John chapter 11. When Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. So I'm going to direct you to John chapter 11 for a moment. I'm going to be reading verses 32 uh, through 44. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, cannot he who opened the eyes of the blind man, which was John 9, also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, them, unbind him and let him go. Now I'm going to quickly flip from there to 1 Thessalonians 4. Another prominent passage I'm sure many of you know. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These are some of the great passages when we deal with death. Uh, they're also, they form the basis of, I think, one of the great approaches to people nowadays. People wonder, where is God in all this? And it's not just abstract. It's not like, it's not why would a good God allow suffering? It's why would a good God allow my suffering? And everybody has an explanation for how this all works out. Again, we've gone through backgrounds and how they've shaped idols and identities and ideals. Uh, We've picked apart the fact that everybody has a religion, which means everybody has an explanation for suffering. But I would argue that it is not in the least bit satisfactory from any other worldview. It's not just that the Bible stands as the best explanation or uh, the best of many options, possibilities, It is the only option which sufficiently engages suffering and sin. One of our most powerful witnesses is we do not grieve as the world grieves. We grieve as those of hope. Does that mean we don't grieve? No, and I think that's a mistake we've often made in our culture. I think a lot of times we've kind of melded Christianity and kind of like American stoicism, for lack of a better term. Like, a good Christian doesn't show emotion, uh, especially painful emotions. But that doesn't seem to be Jesus' approach, right? Uh, He didn't go up to the tomb of Lazarus and say, Romans 8.28, God has a purpose. He was going to show God had a purpose. Uh, He was going to show it. But first he wept. Uh, If we were making this up, that would be a very embarrassing portrait of your God. Uh, to have your God weeping there. But Jesus wept. Our God wept at the tomb. He was there when it was created, reflecting his beauty. And now his garden's become a tomb. Jesus wept. Did he simply weep? Showing us the heart of God? No, he also said, Lazarus, arise. Showing us the power of God. And so then we look at a passage like 1 Thessalonians 4. We don't grieve as the world grieves. We do grieve, just like Jesus wept. But we do so as those with hope. Why? Because after Jesus wept, he said, Lazarus, rise. And people will see us in our grief. Each of you have had your hearts broken in various ways. Some of you, perhaps it's been very minor. Maybe you're early in life, and the ravages of this world have not touched you as deeply. But for most of you, I think you have. 
And the last thing you would want to do is show the people around you how well you've kept everything put together. One of those powerful witnesses is when people see you in your brokenness and your suffering with tear-filled eyes saying, and yet I hope. Uh, there was there's a wonderful, uh, in fact, I'm going to quickly draw it up for reference just so you know about it. It's very simple. Um, a very simple clip. But there, is, there was something I saw years ago. It's called the Austin Stone Project, I believe. And the Austin Stone Stories, one entitled God Wins. These are clips, video clips produced by a church online. Uh, this was years ago. If you look up, like, say, Austin Stone uh, Stories, God Wins, like Google something along those lines, you'll find it. I have it on my phone right now. In which they chronicle someone who has cancer. A believer, believer woman has cancer. She's doing chemo. She's a young mother, has little kids. And it's captivating because you're, you're hearing her tears as she talks and the things that she's grieving over, the things that she's going to miss as she goes, or like, you know, all those messy emotions. But what gives her hope and confidence, she says at the end of this video, is no matter what, God wins. Uh, it's like this. A uh, very young Christian uh, mother uh, in our unit, the, husband, or the wife of one of our soldiers, they have a four-year-old little girl, I told you about her, stage three cancer right now. Uh, it's not looking good at all. Her most recent prognosis, not looking good. And yet she's decided she doesn't want people to talk about her as a champion anymore, as a fighter, as if cancer is the enemy. She said cancer is not the enemy. Uh, what happens if I die? Did I lose? Uh, suffering is not the enemy. In essence, my remaining days, how do I give glory to God? How do I live the life that he's given me? She's redefining the terms of the battle. We're seeing her grieve with hope. The reason why this is important is because, again, everybody has an explanation for suffering and for brokenness. And we want to engage these things with the gospel. We've talked about all these ways in which we can expose people's religious beliefs. Uh, very practically, identities, idols, ideals. But how do we actually give them the gospel now? Uh, uh, there's three, I'd say, problems that people often think are problems for us, especially the first one I'll get to in a moment, but are really problems for all of us that drive people to the gospel that I would like to treat very briefly in turn. Uh, first, the problem of suffering. See, again, people treat these as our problems, that these are actually going to be one of our tools to engage with the gospel. Now that we've, we've hopefully exposed the ruins, now we're trying to rebuild. The problem of suffering. People often treat this as a Christian problem. You know, you say God is sovereign. You say he's, you say he's good. How could a good and sovereign God allow evil? Uh, it's often treated as this great in fact, this will be probably one of the key arguments, if not the key argument you'll hear people use against the gospel. Again, for them, it's rarely ever abstract. They make it sound like this great philosophical problem because it tidies up their mess. But it's usually reflective of deeper struggles and problems. Why did God allow my little kid to die? Why did God allow my husband to walk out the door? But they treat this as our problem. 
And hat tip to Greg Kokel here. He's a great thinker, works for a nonprofit called Stand to Reason. He's got two really good books I love. Uh, one is called The Story of Reality, in which he's, in a, in a sense, showing how only the Bible offers a compelling story for why the world is the way it is. And then he also has a book, Tactics, which is really useful as well. But in the story of reality, he notes the problem of evil and the problem of suffering is not a specifically Christian problem. Is it hard for us to wrestle with? Yes. We all know that. Uh, the secret things belong to God. The revealed things belong to men. We can't peek behind the veil, and sometimes we just have to shut our mouths and worship. All right. But he said it's actually a universal problem. It's unfair to have this directed at Christians. How do any of us deal with suffering this world brokenness? How do any of us explain it? Give me any opposing storyline that offers a more compelling understanding, a more logical understanding of why brokenness and suffering exist in this world. Uh, so you're using suffering, the problem of evil, to say God doesn't exist? Uh, then why do you grieve? But more than that, uh, even as you're expressing your horror at suffering, so God must clearly not exist, that horror feeling is a moral feeling. It's coming from somewhere. It is a religious judgment you're making about suffering. What, what is your alternative naturalism, you know, kind of evolutionary theory? Is it simply that the world is the way it is? We can't do anything about it, say anything about it? Because that gives you no room to actually say this is a problem in the first place. So here you are critiquing God uh, in a world that has no supernatural understanding, uh, which means you have no ability to really critique it. Does that make sense to you guys? Uh, if this world is the way it's always supposed to be spontaneously evolved, uh, you cannot complain about evil about suffering. And this is how it's supposed to be. Or you go the way, I think a lot more common nowadays, most people aren't really atheists, even those who claim it. Uh, Eastern mysticism. And we're in the Northwest here. That's everywhere. It's amazing. It's, even most, pe most people I talk to out there in broader culture here who profess Christian beliefs wedded in to Eastern mysticism. Like, they kind of hold the two together. It's really weird. I actually just read a biography on Patton, and that's what he did. Like, uh, you know, talk, the book talks about his Christianity or whatever, but he also believed in reincarnation. And uh, had a lot of these Eastern ideas mixed into it. Buddhism. So I had a soldier recently told me he identified as Buddhist. Buddhism treats suffering and brokenness as an illusion. Uh, as we're trying to ascend, you know, into that gigantic all, in a sense, as we try to transcend the earthly plane, our goal is kind of meditate past these illusions like suffering. That's a very crass way of putting it. But suffering is, and evil are illusions. They're not worth our grief. They're, you know, we need to meditate. We need to transcend them. In both cases, evil and suffering are not tre treated like evil and suffering. They're basically saying, let's turn a blind eye to it. The problem is you. The problem is your emotions. Uh, the fact that you have a moral category for it at all, the fact that you grieve over it at all, that's your problem. It's not a problem with this world. Christianity alone, the Bible alone, provides a storyline for sin and suffering and evil. Where did it come from? 
Does God do anything, do anything about it? Has he done anything about it? Will he do anything about it? Only the Bible, only our God, offers a compelling understanding of this. That should make sense to us, right? God is truth and his word is truth. And so even as we've been toppling over all these idols, exposing all these identities, it's helpful to point out, well, what's the alternative here? Uh, only the Bible tells us why this is a problem. So when we talk about the problem of evil and the problem it poses to Christians, uh, only Christians can say in the first place why it is a problem. Does that make sense to everybody? I know it's kind of theoretical and out there, like uh, it's kind of abstract. But that's a problem of suffering. And I think that's, it's important to kind of make some of those distinctions. But let's tie that in to something a little more personal. The problem of feelings. This is why I love that this is kind of a new apologetic approach. I think the one more effective way is engage people doing psychology rather than philosophy. Talking about hearts and backgrounds and stories rather than abstract ideas. Are we creating the image of God? Is every single person we engage created in the image of God? Which means they still know truth. Is it saving truth? But it is truth. I think sometimes we forget that. Uh, We think that because they are not believers, they have no access to truth. God's common grace. They're created in the image of God. They have that original dignity. Their minds are darkened, but there's still some light. And one of the key ways I think that's reflected is in their tears. If you are an atheist, why do you weep? Uh... If you are an Eastern mystic, why do you weep? No matter what, when we get hit by tragedy, our hearts break. Why do you weep? Uh, My husband just walked out the door. Uh, I'm shattered. Why? You know, you want to be callous. And again, especially I've got... it's uh, in the counseling office. Men have been compared to like those metal thermoses that you can kind of throw down on the ground, like kick around. You can drive a car over them; they don't break. You can be incredibly rough a lot of times with men. Uh, with women, they more like wine, uh, wine glasses or vases. Uh, you got to be a little more delicate. So if you're if you're talking to a woman, please be more delicate. Uh, but why, why are you shattered? Why is this a problem? Why do you weep? And let me throw this out to you guys for a second. I'll just make it rhetorical. Uh, if I asked you, if you were, say, in the counseling office with me, why it is you weep when something hard has happened, what would you tell me? It's not supposed to be that way. Yeah. And can an unbeliever give a pretty similar response to that? Like, if... If you say, you know, why are you grieving that your husband walked out the door? This, is, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I, this is not what marriage is about. Like, he's supposed to love me unconditionally till, you know, till death do us part. Does she just believe that because it's written in the contract? No, she has this inherent understanding. This was supposed to go all the way. Uh, the kid who is still struggling with incredible anger. Uh, because, let's say, uh, dad beat him. 
getting USC growing up. And he's really upset, but he's really angry. Why are you angry? What do you mean, why am I angry? Like, my dad beat me. Oh, why is that a problem? Dads aren't supposed to beat their kids. Why do you say that? That's not the way, you keep getting back to this point, that's not the way things are supposed to be. Where do you get that from? People understand at, at a certain level that this world is broken. And then understand this world is broken and that they are broken. Uh, that it's broken from something. That something was broken. That there was, this is not the way things were supposed to be. A lot of times tears don't lie. Uh, we've often been uncomfortable around emotion especially in our more like logical circles. Uh, we have, some of our denominations tend to be very heavy and like doctrinal precision, and we, get very, we can be very squeamish around emotion. And yet, emotions don't always betray good thinking. In fact, they often complement it. Tears often tell the truth. Does that make sense to you guys? Besides that, you yeah. Are God-given. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Jesus wept over the, the death of this, this brother. Yeah. He wept the death of our, our loved ones too. Yeah. Hurt. You know, betrayal causes us pain. Yeah. And so we, we are emotional people. Yeah. And God created us that way. The problem is when it goes overboard. Yeah. When it's grief without hope. Again, I just I love that tension. We grieve as those with hope. Uh, we don't just hope. Uh, if we are, we're just turning a blind eye to the brokenness of this world, and that is not godly. Uh, if we just grieve, then we're not recognizing that God is sovereign, God is loving, and he has the final word. That's not godly either. Uh, do we always neatly fit into that tension point between? Virtually never. Uh, but we live in that tension. Yeah, reflecting the, the heart of our Savior, who wept. Did he just weep over the tomb of Lazarus? Did he weep elsewhere? Or where else? Do either any of you remember? In the garden? Oh, there we go. Uh, sweat falling like drops of blood. Uh, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Yeah. Over Jerusalem as well. I love that. It's, he not only wept over the tomb and over death, the brokenness of this world, but also unbelief. Oh, Jerusalem. Would they, if only you knew, I would take you under my wings like a motherhood. Uh, that's the heart of our God. Emotions are incredibly important. Who gave us emotions? Our Lord did. What a precious gift, too, that we can reflect the brokenness of this world, that we can open a window upon the brokenness of our hearts in tears. What a beautiful mirror of those things. Uh, that is what, how a healthy person works. But those tears tell the truth. When someone weeps, they're acknowledging the fall. They're acknowledging creation. They're acknowledging the need for redemption. Uh, yeah, at some point, when my buddy Stephen is here, I see, I see you here, Marcus. Have you heard from Stephen? Right a little bit late. All right, I'll, I'll let him talk a little bit more about his story at some point. But there's some commonalities here in terms of this chain of thinking that we've just talked about.
So the problem of suffering, the problem of feelings. I love this feelings piece because it's so instinctive and it's so personal. People are feeling loved as you're talking about this. Like the problem of suffering can sometimes get heady. The last thing you want to do when somebody's suffering, you know, where is God in all this? Is to start hitting them with various arguments like for the existence of God. You got to be a lot more careful, I think, with the problem of suffering in those moments. But the problem of feelings. You know, sister, why do you weep? Brother, why is this so hard? And validating them, too. So often we're used to just critiquing other people. What if you said, oh, wow, I think you're really onto something here. Or I'm really impressed. Or there is something incredibly true about what you're doing. I don't hear a lot of other people wrestling with these things in these ways. The fact that you shed tears here shows that you're acknowledging something in the very framework of this universe that a lot of people right now are suppressing. Why don't we validate them and say, hey, uh, you got something good here. And there's going to be a final problem here I'm going to talk about in a moment, about the problem of brokenness uh, that actually drive us to the gospel as well. But before I do, hey, Stephen, good to see you, brother. Would you mind if I asked you a question or two? All right, you're a bubbly extrovert. You'll take it on the fly. All right. So obviously we know that when we are saved, we're saved by God's grace alone through the power of his Holy Spirit, all of us. Uh, it's, uh, that's the caveat. It's, it, it is the Spirit who worked in your heart, brother, to bring you to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there are thought processes that go along with that. So in these last couple months, right before you came to embrace the gospel, as you were wrestling with that, what was the thought process that drove you to the gospel? Thank you, brother. That's helpful. Uh, have, you, you've, have you known brokenness in your life? Has it caused you incredible pain? Uh, have you had to relive some of that brokenness in your adult life? Yeah, and so a lot of the things we've been taught about the past couple of weeks are things that Stephen has seen in his own life. And if, if you ever want to know more of his story, you can ask him, and I'm sure he'll, he'll fill you in on more of it. But his own understanding of his own brokenness. Uh, I remember that conversation we had when we came back from the field. Uh, you had a really rough last year. Probably one of the worst of your life. Uh, by the end of the year, you had a really good understanding that the world was broken, right? Uh, the world around you, the world you're raised in, the world you live in now. You had a pretty good understanding at this point that you were part of the problem, <laughs> that you were broken too. And you recognized also that because of that, uh, if you were to have any hope before God, you weren't going to be able to climb the ladder. Is that a pretty... Good understanding? And God would have had to climb down. And when we had that conversation, the missing piece was, at that point, you weren't sure that Jesus was the one who did that for you. But I think it was within about a week or so that the Lord opened your eyes and your heart. Uh, and you now sit along us as a, alongside of us as a brother. brother. Uh, 
So the brokenness problem, the problem of brokenness. When you've surveyed somebody's heart with them, when you've unearthed all the rubble, they understand that this world is broken and that they are broken too. Uh, people, first of all, people have no problem understanding this world is broken right now. This isn't the 1900s, uh, where people had this unlimited, this view of unlimited potential and progress and all this the perfectibility of human nature. No, that is long gone. Uh, they ruined it. Uh, when now we're left in the ruins, and people see this. People are so dark and so cynical. You guys see this when you go out there right now. Like we're not reading Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. We're reading Game of Thrones, where everything good and beautiful is killed off. Uh, that is kind of the worldview right now, but people still kind of remove that brokenness from themselves. Uh, so that it's often, it's easy to think of yourself as a victim of the brokenness rather than a perpetrator of it. But as you go through somebody's life like this, unearthing the false identities and idols and ideals, more and more you're able to flesh out the fact that we're part of the problem. Uh, we're part of the brokenness. Uh, just like with Stephen, for me, uh, growing up in an abusive household, uh, for a long time, you know, I was, I was angry with God. I thought he was indifferent. The problem for me was the suffering. I was a victim of my circumstances. The thing that finally got me on my knees on a church bike trip, well, it was really a whole summer, versus a church uh, camping trip and a church bike trip, uh, was all of a sudden realizing my own brokenness. That, I, that God didn't have to explain his ways regarding my dad to me. Uh, I had to account for myself before God, my own sin. And so hopefully in going through someone's life like this, they see they're part of the brokenness here. It's now you have these two things weighing against them. How in the world would it be possible for broken people in a broken world to ascend the ladder to God? We can't. If someone is honest about their own heart, they say, well, if God does exist, he has to come down. So this isn't just... We're not, this is not just an argument for religion. It not, it's not just an argument for God. Because again, none of those other explanations are satisfactory. Only in the Bible, only in real human history, the very truth of God, did Jesus himself come down to us. We are the only religion that said God came to us, that we can't ascend to him. And everybody, if they take long enough to think about their own hearts, will see that if we are to have any hope with God, he has to come down with us. Come down, to, come down to us. Any other system in which you have to somehow ascend to God through good works, through mysticism, through reason, whatever, whatever have you, if you're honest about your brokenness, and usually we can get you there, you know that's a fool's errand. Jesus alone came down. That is our alone hope. And the problem of brokenness shows that only, only the truth revealed in Scripture uh, gives us that hope. So the problem of suffering, Christianity alone gives the story. The problem of feelings, Christianity alone validates our tears, says that we're not crazy, that this is actually a, a right reaction to reality. You should weep at the graveside. And then three, the problem of brokenness. If you're honest about brokenness, nothing else is going to do it. And so both Stephen and I, I think that when the scales finally fell away from our eyes, is in a pretty similar way. Uh, we had to take a hard look at the ugly face of our own hearts. Uh, and instead of trying to mask it anymore, say, okay, Lord, wipe away the tears.
So do all three of those approaches make sense? See how we've kind of gone on more of an offensive footing here. We're no longer just trying to sort away the clutter, expose the ruins, but we're trying to show now how only Christianity can reorder your life. Now, obviously, I just kind of gave principles here. But in practice, think about the people in your life uh, that you're engaging and how you apply these principles to their lives. You know, I gave an example of, well, I gave my example and Stephen's example. Uh, the woman whose husband has left her. Uh, the kid who's really struggling with anger, the young adult who's really struggling with anger because his dad was abusive. And think about how you can use these to engage them. Remember, this is not where you start. Again, one of the struggles I think we've had in outreach is that this is where we often start with people. People aren't ready yet there for that compelling vision of the solution when they haven't yet owned the problem. Jesus said, I came for the sick, not the healthy, the sinners, not the righteous. They need the bad news before they get the good news, and this is how we show them, slowly, patiently, recognizing the sovereignty of God, that there's a problem. We've done all the legwork, that was our teaching time the past couple weeks, and now we say, okay, let's talk about how we can reorder the ruins. So I'm going to stop there. We have about five minutes left. Again, I always forget, is it 1040 or 1045 that we stop? I'll keep an eye on it. That is a great question. Thank you, Pastor Brett. One of the better questions we've had all day. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, no later than 1045. I'm laying it up to questions. Uh, whatever's on your mind and heart at this point. So, questions about... Next week, we'll talk some, about some other strategies, too. But about any of these strategies uh, for engaging people? Anything else we've talked about so far? Okay, thank you. That is, that is really helpful. Uh, so with the first approach, the problem of suffering, uh, why is it a problem? Uh, and what are the alternatives? Uh, how, how do you deal with the problem of suffering? People are so used to just attacking Christianity, and Christians are so used to just being on their heels. Like, let me say, let's sit down, let's talk about this together. Because I think that's a problem for both of us. I just have a feeling that it fits better in my story than yours. Uh, so what are the alternatives? Uh, why is this a problem for all of us? And that could actually be a really fun, fruitful discussion. Uh, instead of like, just taking shots at each other, like, let's wrestle with it together. Let's discuss all the different ways in which we can interpret this. Uh, so the question with uh, the problem of feelings, either why does this hurt? Or who cares? Who cares? You've got to say the right way. Uh, but you know, why, why do you feel this way? Uh, so when you are, why are you crying? Well, it's because I'm hurting so much. Why do you hurt so much? I, f- I feel abandoned. Uh, why do you feel abandoned? Because, well, he left me. Uh, wh- why was that a problem? Why does that, 
Like, what, were you expecting something different? Uh, why were you expecting that? You know, since you can play this whole 20 questions game, but like, I think I said last year at one point, it's like that you're that petulant kid in the back seat of the car. You're not petulant. Let's say intellectually curious. He's always saying, why, 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 why? Our kids are kind of in that stage right now, right, honey? Yeah. Endless whys. Endless whys. It's like, let's listen to something on CD. Uh, no more whys. Uh, but just continue asking those whys. Whenever they give you an emotion, a feeling, a, a thought, just continue to poke and prod. And the final piece, uh, the problem of brokenness. Uh, what is your hope? So we've gone to the point where everything's broken. You're broken, the world is broken. What possible hope do you have then? How are you going to climb that ladder? Like, let's take it a step further and expose uh, their own ineptitude, their own insufficiency. Uh, what possible way do we have of accessing God if this brokenness is a reality? It's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Everybody accuses religion in general, but especially Christianity, as being an opiate for the masses, as a crutch. Really? We are the one belief system, because it's true, that says this world is fundamentally broken and you're broken. That doesn't flatter. Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless. <laughs> this is all meaningless. As he's surveying this broken world, everybody else is trying to naively reconstruct it in their own image as if we are the change we've been waiting for. Christianity alone looks at the brokenness of this world, deals with reality as it actually is, and puts it in context. We're the last group to look naively at this world. We might do so on a practical level, but our worldview doesn't lend itself to that. Yes, Tim. Yeah, that's a great question, Tim. Uh, so it's, as I mentioned, I think, last week, it is more difficult to engage people who have, at least on the surface, had more put-together lives. Uh, now, it's a lot easier, I think, today than it was, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago to convince people that the world is broken, that they're broken. Uh, it's usually t- very carefully held together with the string of like, human emotion nowadays. Uh, self-esteem, self-fulfillment. We've all got all these veneers, but it's so close to the surface. So I feel like for a lot of people in the culture, it doesn't take much spade work. Uh, the things we've been doing in terms of going through people's backgrounds, that shouldn't earth a lot of it for folks. But what about folks who grew up in a two-parent, upper-middle-class household, got a good education, now are in a, an intact marriage themselves? There's still going to be those nagging questions. Like, is this... The dream right here. Uh, is this what my whole life is about? Uh, again, false ideals. Uh, all right, good, I got the Ivy League degree. Uh, I have a wife and two kids. Am I ready to die? Uh, is this what my whole life has been about? And then what happens when things do go off the rails? Let's do the hypotheticals. Uh, your kids are going to make decisions that you don't like that perhaps hurt you gravely. At some point, they're going to leave the nest. Uh, so the, the possibilities 
of brokenness as well. I, this is just me thinking out loud, brother. Uh, but yeah, it is more difficult with these folks, and yet you can still get to the same place. Uh, we are still suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We are all still sinners and sufferers. It just takes more spade work. Uh, it is more difficult. It's not as close to the surface. But yeah, those are just one or two questions that I would have for somebody in that boat. Any other questions? All right, if you do have any more questions, again, yes. Yeah. So again, often I don't I haven't already formulized this, but I, which I'm doing kind of on the fly right now. I would say one thing I do to keep people disarmed is I'm simultaneously constantly confessing my own brokenness, that I struggle with this too. Oh, so you're saying you don't, have any, you don't struggle at all with the problem of evil, that you don't struggle at all, that these things happen in the world? I do. Give me about once every month or two, uh, give me a long night after Lindsay and the kids have gone to sleep and I'm weeping there in the dark thinking about all that I see and all that I hear. So yeah, I, it is a problem for me too. Uh, the problem of suffering, I, it tears me apart. Uh, Feelings. Uh, I'm, I'm usually there in the counseling office shedding tears with them. Uh, the problem of brokenness. I know how broken I am. I feel kneecapped in this world. I know my own heart. I don't have a prayer uh, apart from God. And so I'm wrestling there alongside with them. And I think this, share, this sense of shared, unified suffering and wrestling is what really helps. Where it, constantly does, it doesn't feel like I'm the counselor. It feels like we are both the counselees in need of grace. Uh, something which you do in the counseling office quite a bit as well. Uh, so that would just be one of my initial thoughts. The sh- shared bond of suffering. Yeah, and fellow sinners. There is nothing that you're sh- struggling with right now, uh, your own brokenness, your own limitations, that I'm not as well. And that's not trying to deny or un- you know, invalidate their suffering. It's saying that we're on the same plane and wherever you're hurting, like, Man, I don't have a leg up on you. Uh, so thank you for a good question. Again, you have any more questions, please talk to me offline. Uh, let's go ahead and go before our Lord in prayer. Lord, why is it that we can grieve as those with hope? That we're not just left with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can grieve as those with hope because you have done it. It is finished. We can grieve as those with hope because you also grieved and then achieved, accomplished our eternal hope by unrolling your own tombstone. Because Jesus showed his heart and and power over death, we can open our hearts and grieve and trust in your power over death. So often we feel like we're on our heels, so often we feel like we're just limping through this world. And yet here's our hope. The lamb who was slain will triumph. The lamb who take away our sin will come back with our tears. That already now, a place is being prepared for us in glory. That already we are seated with our Savior in glory. That already we are citizens of that new kingdom. That already that kingdom is crashing through this broken world. 
that already blooms and blossoms of your grace are being planted in, th- in this wasting wilderness world. And that one day, the tomb will be abolished. One day, we will walk in the cool of the day in the garden once more with our Jesus, with our Savior. One day, we will be made whole. One day, we will be healed. One day, we will know life and life to the full. Our lives are hidden with Christ and God. We don't often believe that. But one day, when Christ, who is our life, appears, so we will also appear with him in glory. And we finally will go, oh, this is what you meant. How we long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Please prepare our hearts to hear your word uh, with open ears, with conviction of sin, and with comfort in the gospel. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.